the dark years. I'm referring to a five to six hundred year period during which the Olympic gods and goddesses stepped back and allowed themselves to slowly, knowingly become irrelevant. Can you read about their retreat in books about mythology? Probably not. Scholars rarely admit to the possibility. Modern academics have gathered their wagons in a circle. They say the divinities were myths, that they never really existed. But what if they did exist? That's been the premise of many of these episodes, right? I say it in every show. The gods, like you, are here now. How can that be? Surely I'm speaking tongue-in-cheek. This is all a cunning plan to entertain you. It's a ruse. You're sure I'm kidding. But what if I'm not? Let's go back in our time machine to Greece and say 150 BC. Then after we look around a bit, we'll slowly go forward in time. And all the while we'll track the gods and goddesses as they willingly retreat from the madness of that time. This is episode 44 of Garner's Greek Mythology. We have listeners from 163 countries, so welcome to everyone, wherever you are. I'm your host, mythologist Patrick Garner. Some of these stories about the gods have been told for thousands of years, but now there are new stories that are as compelling. Check out my best-selling books on Amazon about the Greek gods in the contemporary world. You can also read about them in this podcast at patrickgarnerbooks.com. And as always, this podcast focuses on one thing. Greek gods, of course. They, like you, are here now. We've stepped into our time machine. We've used it before. Remember the episode about the Eleusinian Mysteries? In that episode, our machine took us to Athens around 550 BC. Today, we're not going quite that far back. Instead, we'll dial in the year 150 BC. Our purpose is to observe how the Greeks relate to their gods and how the gods reciprocate. Remember that their relationship was always a two-way street. Men and women ask for favors. They might ask to be healed from an illness or injury. They might ask for more wealth or luck in love. They knew that the gods expected something in return. It was only fair. So those asking for favors brought sacrifices. Goats, sheep, birds. Even if those pleading with gods were desperate, oxen whose horns had been plated in gold. And remember that the gods were not worshipped as we think of worship. Belief in the Olympic gods was not a religion. As I've mentioned before, the Greeks didn't even have a word for religion. You see, to have a word such as religion would mean that there had to be its opposite. To identify and name those who believed in the gods would mean that there were those who did not. But in ancient Greece, there was almost always universal belief in Zeus, Poseidon, Hades, Demeter, Artemis, 
Athene, Apollo, Dionysus, and the rest. Doubters were so few that when some so-called philosopher expressed disbelief, he invariably was driven from his town. The Greeks thought, how could anyone question the obvious? Our time machine takes us to Athens. We land in a wooded glade beside a long processional that winds up around the Acropolis. We're dressed like all the citizens. No one will guess that we're from a distant time. Confidently, we step out into the sun. The sky is brilliantly blue. The city is bustling with activity. For a week, we wander through the streets and alleys. Athens is famous for its agora, the central gathering place for city life. We're not surprised to find statues everywhere of gods and heroes, but we're not content to spend our days in the agora. We decide that we'll also visit all the major temples. Day after day, we visit the temple to Athene, to Artemis, to Zeus, there's a huge temple to Hephaestus and another to Apollo. At each, we find priests or priestesses. Sacrifices take place early in the morning and at dusk. The Athenians seem consumed by their ceremonies. The supplicants at these temples are sincere. Their feelings seem heartfelt and profound. From the sidelines, one of us asks quietly. No one's hypocritical. Their cries to the gods seem as natural as breathing. We've spoken to dozens of Athenians who praise the healing temples of Asclepius and Hippocrates. One's mother was healed of stomach aches or another's sister recovered from a strange inflammation. Whatever the illness, the gods had listened. After almost a week, we decide to travel forward in time. We'll stay in Athens, but leap ahead a century. Will anything have changed? We're there. We open the doors of our time machine. It's now a hundred years later about 50 B.C., and we're in the same wooded glade as before. We step out with confidence. We know exactly where we are. Athens is as beautiful as always. The sky is a brilliant blue. But something has changed. Our easygoing Athenians seem more somber. They smile less frequently. We stop and ask one of them, saying, Friend, you seem glum. Everyone seems downhearted. It's been years since we visited this great city. Has something changed? The man we stop looks us up and down, saying, You're strangers. What city do you call your home? We quickly say, A small village north of here in Macedonia. He half smiles, whispering, You're not a Roman. We respond, 
No, hardly. And why, friend, are you so solemn? We have lost our freedom, he says. Euthera. And nothing matters more than freedom. We nod stupidly. How could that have happened, we ask. The Romans, he says, they made us a vassal state. The general, Julius Caesar, rules all these lands. The man looks around as if to ensure that no one heard him speak. Then he walks away without a further word. We decide to return to our old haunts and visit the Agora and the marvelous temples that we know like the back of our hands. To our shock, the temple to Aphrodite is now a temple to Venus. The glorious temple of Zeus has been renamed the temple of Jupiter. The smaller temple to Ares, the god of war, is called the temple of Mars. The shining temple to Artemis is now a temple of Diana. Only Apollo's temple remains unchanged. With this one exception, all of these holy spots have been rebranded. The priests and priestesses no longer look Athenian. We ask someone at the temple of Pluto, and they whisper, all Romans. We nod quietly, thanking the man. We ask a final question. Are the number of worshipers smaller than in the past? He nods and wanders off. After a day or so of checking every holy spot, we corner another man who has dared to look us in the eyes. He has a long beard and seems intelligent. Friend, we say, much has changed since we last visited this place. The sacrifices seem smaller. Those who come to ask favors of the gods are fewer. Is our memory hazy? Have things changed, or is it our imagination? He furtively looks around. We're alone, and he says, Darkness has come. The gods rarely respond when we make our pleas. We pause, nodding. After a moment, we ask, How can that be? Artemis has always listened. Hermes is always ready to carry messages. Not Artemis, he hisses. She's now Diana. And Hermes, we're required to call him Mercury. How can that be, we ask? The gods are the gods. Their names don't change. The old man says quietly, the Romans renamed them all with Roman names. When they did so, the gods seemed to withdraw. Withdraw, we say in a dazed voice. How? He says, they're being used. The gods, you know, are hardly stupid. Why would they tolerate this abuse? Then he pulls his cloak tighter and leaves in a rush. Over the course of several days, we ask others the same questions. Those who respond say the same thing. The gods are now Roman. The gods seem to have retreated. Sacrifices are to no avail. Prayers are rarely answered. We encounter a very old woman 
When she hears our questions, she takes us aside. I was once the chief priestess for Athene, she says. But when the Romans came, I was pushed out. They call her Minerva. No one here believes in Minerva. We ask, does this Minerva talk to you like your beloved Athene? No, she says. The goddess is angry. It's like she's walked away. When we ask, did you last hear from Athene? The old woman says, it's been years. She told me that she had better things to do and that I should look out for myself. You're saying she's left, we ask? The woman pauses, finally saying, maybe she's just interested in other things. In less than a century, everything has changed. We stumble around the old city. The monuments and grand buildings all stand tall. But the confidence of the Athenians is gone. They're now conquered people. Worse, they appear humiliated. Athene, for whom the city was named, has been renamed Minerva. Zeus, the mightiest of the Olympic gods, is now Jupiter. His wife Hera has become Juno. She's been rebranded as well because as Zeus's wife, she was the most jealous and vindictive woman in history. The Romans made her into a warm symbol of family life. Our conclusion is that the gods, like the Greeks themselves, were conquered as well. Were the Romans really that Powerful. Hardly. But their refashioning of the Olympic gods into a Latinized alternative was a reflection of two things. One, although they wouldn't admit it, the Romans envied everything Greek. The Greeks excelled in all things cultural and that included their pantheon of superhuman beings. The Greek gods were powerful, attractive, and admired throughout the Mediterranean. The second thing was face-saving. The Romans could co-opt the greatest of the gods, claiming them as their own by giving them Latin names. Thus, Eros became Cupid. Poseidon became Neptune. Hades, Pluto, and so on. As I mentioned earlier, only Apollo kept his name. The Greeks were humiliated and had been conquered. Like any defeated country, they went along with the charade. And so we as time travelers pause for a moment and marvel over the change. The facade of the great Greek temples has been refashioned. But the Greeks are hardly fooled. And the gods themselves, have they gone along with this travesty? In truth, the Olympians had begun to decouple from the adulation centuries before. After all, they could do anything and be anywhere they wished. By Socrates' time, boredom had set in among the divinities. Artemis was often absent. Athena herself rarely appeared before mortals. 
Poseidon was increasingly content to care for his vast herd of stallions, all kept lovingly below the seas. And when could anyone remember seeing the mighty Zeus? His exploits were old stories from the past. Only Hades remained at work, harvesting humans as he had always done, herding the dead down to the underworld. And the rest of the gods, like Artemis and her brother Apollo, they too frequently pursued their own interests, ignoring entreaties from their worshippers. The intimate link between mankind and these immortal beings was already frayed. When the Romans marched into Greece, the Olympic gods barely noticed. The Romans, though, went about building their empire in the name of these renamed gods. It was easier if they could claim the gods had blessed it all. Their constant wars were conducted in the name of Ares, the war god who was now Mars. Sacrifices went on as before. The Romans specialized in vast spectacles and circuses, all conducted with the supposed blessings of the gods. But there was a hollowness to it all. In reality, the gods had moved on. They were absent. No one saw them. For a while, they were useful tools for the Roman Empire. Then there was another cultural shift. For those who believed in the old gods, the dark years were about to turn black. Let's leap ahead to about 400 A.D. Our time machine takes us to Rome for our last stop. The great empire has existed for 550 years, but it's beginning to crack. The Delphic Oracle has survived, but only barely. Supposedly Apollo's mouthpiece. In reality, her pronouncements had become Roman propaganda. What the Romans called barbaric tribes were invading from the north and east, but there are other threats to the empire plague, climate change, and two, the official Roman gods are now under attack. Amazingly, the attackers are not foreigners, rather they're Romans themselves. As the classicist Catherine Nixley writes in her book, The Darkening Age, the empire is increasingly being torn apart by the new believers who call themselves Christians. At first, this new religion spreads among the empire's slaves and lower classes, but within a short time it has followers among the aristocrats. By 395 AD, the emperor himself is openly Christian. With his blessings, the old temples are attacked and burnt. Delphi is shuttered, never to open again. When we return to our time machine for the trip home, we look back and see that this emperor, Theodosius, drew the final curtain upon what was left of the old gods. Before his time, and with greater intensity after, the entire Mediterranean world went through 
a spasm of destruction. The old statues of the gods, whether Greek or Roman, were destroyed without discrimination. Temples were literally pulled apart. The sacred groves found all over the countryside were cut down. Priestesses were driven from their temples. The new believers became fanatics who tried to eradicate all of the so-called pagan ways. Countless books were burnt. Even Aristotle's school of philosophy in Athens, now almost 900 years old, was closed forever. Laws were passed forbidding sacrifice. Then laws were passed forbidding any worship of the old gods in any form. Churches were built upon the foundations of temples. Statues of the Olympic gods were smashed or rolled into rivers. Any acknowledgment of the mighty Greek gods was forced underground. Anyone who believed in the old ways did so in secret. We can shake our heads today at the wanton destruction, but what the Christians wrought upon the Greek gods was hardly unique. Religions like armies have conquered populations for countless years. Old places of worship are torn down or rebuilt to reflect the victor. The wave of destruction that took place 1,600 years ago in the Roman Empire was not unique. Human nature hasn't changed in that regard. And it's important to note that not just temples and groves were obliterated. Scholars joined in by describing the Olympic gods as myths. We study them today as mythology, right? The new religion in 500 AD destroying the possibility that Zeus and others even existed, became paramount. The party line became that the immortals had never been. They were inventions, complete fabrications by ancient pagans. That assertion continues today. And the gods themselves, they allowed themselves to be erased. They had long lost interest in the affairs of mortals. So we leave our time machine. We're back in the present. What's the takeaway? It's this. There is no proof that the gods are myths. They still appear to those who have eyes to see. But their desire to interact with large populations, their demand to be acknowledged as gods, ended millennia ago. Regardless, they're immortals. As I emphasize in every episode, they, like you, are here now. Join me for the next episode of Garner's Greek Mythology and visit patrickgarnerbooks.com. It's all about your favorite Greek gods, this podcast, and about my three novels. The novels are available on Amazon. Their underlying theme is that the Greek gods never left. Yes, as I say in every episode, they're here now. If you'd prefer to listen, after all, you are listening to a podcast. 
one of the three Homo Divinitus, is available as an audible book. And I'm pleased to announce that these episodes are also available on YouTube. Find them under Garner's Greek Mythology. And thanks for listening. This is your host, Patrick Garner.